you know, a lot of my father's um, colleagues sent their kids to private schools. And my dad sent us all to public schools and mm. said to me at one point, you're my child and coming home to me. So I'm not really worried about what school you go to, but there's something you're going to get from going to a public school that I don't think you're going to get from a private school. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Sylvester, please go ahead. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, Sylvester Mobley, I am the CEO of Coded by Kids, which is a youth tech education and innovation education organization. I'm also the managing director of Plain Sight Capital. Um, Plainsight Capital is an incubator, a startup accelerator, and early stage venture capital fund focusing specifically on underrepresented founders in the tech and innovation space. Um, and with Coded by Kids, we focus on preparing underrepresented young people for leadership positions in, in tech. So, you know, the idea is we want to prepare young people who often aren't given access to opportunities in the tech and innovation space the ability to go as far as absolutely possible through a very deliberate multi-year progressive developmental model where they get everything they need. They get support, they get education, they get resources. Um, and then with Plainsight Capital, it's in a lot of ways the same thing, except for adults. How do we ensure that underrepresented people who want to get into the tech space, who want to access those opportunities and start scalable high growth companies have the access to the capital, the support, the networks, and the resources they need to, to build successful companies. Mm. And, and before I ask you a couple of questions about you know, how the company is doing now, can you please explain to the listeners, you know, why did you get into this? What's your background? What's your, what's your story? So my background is in tech. Um, I got into tech by accident is what I usually say. So I, mm -hmm. Started out in the Marine Corps. So when I graduated high school at 17, yeah. I joined the Marines, spent four years in the Marines, learned that you could re-enlist in the military but didn't have to re-enlist in the same branch. Mm -hmm. So I actually went into the Air Force after my time in the Marines. And honestly, I just wanted an easy job. I didn't know what I wanted to do in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I just knew I didn't want to do what I spent the last four years in the Marines doing. Um, <laughs> anyone who knows anything about the Marines it is not the easiest lifestyle. Um, so I picked a job in the Air Force that I thought was just going to be an easy job. Yeah. It ended up being computer network, cryptographic switching. And that's how I got into to technology. So I've been in technology in some shape or form um, over the last 20 years. 
what I quickly found being in technology was usually your diversity gets concentrated in the lowest paying jobs with the mm-hmm. least opportunity for growth. If you move into higher paying jobs, more opportunity for growth, there's very little to no diversity, especially when you look at who's starting venture capital backed startups. So I wanted to start an organization that focused on that, focused on how do we really target the upper end and prepare underrepresented young people for, mm-hmm. you know, the roles where they can go as high as possible instead of us limiting how far they can go. And and um, has that been a, you know, an easy road, you know, towards starting your company and, and getting this, you know, yeah, going? Oh, oh no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's what I thought. Yeah. For, for a variety of reasons. Um, uh-huh. You know, one, I didn't use our traditional education system as a model. Um, and I didn't because mm-hmm. when you look at outcomes for underrepresented um, people, especially black and brown people, our education system doesn't have a good track record in terms of outcomes. Like our education system actually performs pretty poorly when you look at outcomes. So I felt like that would be a crazy thing to then build an organization modeled off of a system that has, you know, very poor outcomes. And I started looking to systems that have much better outcomes in terms of working towards long-term impact and long-term results. And what I found is sports actually has one of the best track records of working towards long-term impact and long-term outcomes. Hmm. I was building an education organization using a lot of the same models used in sports, which made things complicated. And then I also wanted to have a multi-year progressive developmental model, which there's, it's almost like a, a, it's, there's this thing, uh, uh, for lack of better words, it's almost like a dirty secret in the nonprofit space. If you have a light touch, And, you know, you're focusing on breadth of impact. You know, so you're focusing on how many people. Mm-hmm. If you have this light touch and you're not really going deep, you can then have huge numbers. So you can say we reached 10,000 people. The problem is you start to have questions about, okay, well, you reached 10,000 people, but what are the outcomes for those 10,000 people? And a lot of times organizations in the nonprofit space can say, well, we reached 10,000 people but the outcomes for those 10,000 people aren't great. Mm-hmm. If you want to go really deep and focus on long-term outcomes, it can be hard to get funders to buy into that because funders are saying like, well, we want to see, you know, that you've reached the 10,000 people. We want to see that you've reached a million people, mm-hmm. but it takes a very different level of um, focus. Your infrastructure is different. The staff you need are different to get to truly long-term deep impact. Um, so it was really difficult for me in the beginning to yeah. get funders to buy into that long-term model. So now we reach between 500 and 550 young people each week. We mm-hmm. operate across three states. So we started in, oh. in one rec center in, in one neighborhood in Philadelphia and have been able to expand out from that one neighborhood, that one rec center, to working with kids across three, three states in our region. So, Sylvester, you're working in, in three states. So when, when kids have gone through 
a, do you call it a course or or uh, how long is it and and what can they do after that um so that's where we also look different than some other organizations for us it's not about a, a, a course we look for every young person that comes into our organization to stay for at least three to four years and over the course mm. of three to four years, they're progressively developing. Um, things get more and more rigorous. Things get more and more difficult. At the end of it, the next step for, for us with our young people is higher education. Um, a lot of people talk about, do you need to go to college? Is college worth it? There's a few things that get left out of that conversation. One is there's actually very clear data that shows in the tech space a person of color going into tech without a college degree will do worse than their white counterparts. Knowing that, the question we've always had to ask is, are we preparing them to the best of our ability, knowing what the data says, if we don't prepare them for higher education? The other part of it that gets left out is, I've had people say to me, well, you know, a college education or a college degree isn't... Um, isn't always worth it. You know, you can get a degree and you're not making the same type of money that, you know, you, you expect to make. What gets missed is the debt for a degree in computer science is the same as the debt for a degree in criminal justice, but your outcomes are completely different. Mm -hmm. If you look at the demographics of who ends up in the lowest paying college majors, it's overwhelmingly people of color. So people of color are taking out massive amounts of debt to go into college majors that have a very low return on investment, then graduate and say, well, college wasn't worth it. I shouldn't have gone where it wasn't that college wasn't worth it. It's just, we tend to get tracked into um, the wrong majors. So for, for us, that mm -hmm. next step after the bus is higher education, where we continue supporting them. So we'll support our young people up to 24 just so that they have the system and the structure around them so that we can ensure that they're actually getting through college successfully. That's great. You, you have, you know, a success story uh, that you can share. Um, so it's it's hard to pick any any single thing. You know, I, one of the things I, I do look at is I look at the schools that our young people are are getting into. So you know, we have young people who are are in Wharton. Um, you know, we have young people who are going to top tier schools that they're getting into. They're sticking with. They're they're, they're getting through. Um, but also, you know, I look at our young people who are as they're getting towards the end of college, they're already saying, I want to start my own company. I want to start my own startup, which is ultimately what we, what we want, you mm -hmm. know? And to see young people who are saying, this is what I want to do. I want to start a company. That is the success for, for me. You know, one thing I always say is I'm not doing this to produce the next generation of employees. I'm doing this to produce the next generation of employers. Could we go to other companies you, you have? The other one is Plainsight Capital. Um, okay. Plainsight Capital started because early on um, in the, the life of Coded by Kids, my hypothesis was if we're successful with our model, we'll be mm -hmm. producing this generation of underrepresented young people who are going to want to start venture capital-backed startups, and we should be able to invest in them. 
um, you know, we should be able to provide them access to capital and that support. Mm-hmm. And from a business perspective, we should be better positioned than the typical early stage venture capital fund. Um, the typical early stage venture capital fund doesn't really have a lot of data to go off of when they're making investment. Mm-hmm. So they use pattern matching. You know, is this a, a white guy who went to Stanford? Which that then creates the lack of diversity that you see in venture capital. You know, people often say, I don't understand why there's so little diversity in venture capital. It's like, well, it's it's pretty easy to understand if you're using pattern matching. People who don't fit that pattern just aren't going to get access to, to capital. We're in a much better position because of the amount of time we're able to work with the, the, the young people that we have to then make investment decisions. What it ended up growing into over time was, yes, you know, we can invest in our young people, but we should also be able to use a lot of the things we've learned, the models we've developed, to make the same types of investments in, in adults. So, you know, plain sight capital grew out of this. We should be able to invest in our young people into let's have a venture capital fund where our young people are just one, one group of, you know, talent that we invest in, but we're also able to invest in underrepresented adults as well who want to get into the tech space. But tell us a little bit, where, where were you born and, and about your journey? Because I, yeah, I'm interested, I'm sure the listeners as well. I mean, I feel like I had, a, I had an amazing childhood. Um, and, it, you know, I, I feel like I had a really amazing but very diverse childhood. Um, my father was, was a doctor. Mm-hmm. He was the director of the pediatric intensive care unit um, at Jefferson Hospital. And he taught medical school. So I grew up going to work with him. When he would go to make rounds, he would take me with him. I would sit in the back of his classes when he was teaching medical students as a kid. So growing up in that environment was amazing as a kid to just sit and soak all of that that, that in and take all of that in. Um, I also had a mother who was an entrepreneur and owned a small business until she, until she retired. So I also grew up with owning a business being normalized. You know, that was just the thing that I saw. The, probably the other unique thing was my father grew up in the projects in North Philly. And he went into the Marines and he was able to eventually go to college in the medical school because he served in Vietnam and he was able to use his GI Bill. To, to, to go to college. Mm. But my his mother, my grandmother, remained in North Philly, you know, all of her life. So he thought it was important that I understood the environment that he came from, understood how he grew up. So I would spend a lot of time with my, 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 my grandmother. And, you know, I think mm. about how as a kid, I was growing up in two very different environments. Mm-hmm but didn't realize it until I was older. You know, I didn't realize how different socioeconomically my, my friends in North Philly were from, you know, my friends in, in Mount Airy and mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in Iowa's. But what it did was it produced an adult 
who was very well-rounded. You know, I feel comfortable in a lot of different places. You know, I I usually don't feel like, hey, I don't know if I fit in here. I don't, like, there's so many places I can go and I feel okay. I can have conversations, which have helped me a lot in the work that I do. You know, I could be in a meeting with a corporate partner, a corporate funder, and then 15 minutes later, be in a community center in New Philly, and I'm just as comfortable in, in, in both places. You know, a lot of my father's um, colleagues sent their kids to private schools, and my dad sent us all to public schools and mm. said to me at one point, you're my child, you're coming home to me, so I'm not really worried about what school you go to, but there's something you're going to get from going to a public school that I don't think you're going to get from a private school. So I want you to go to a public school. And I appreciate that because there was mm. a lot that I got from just being in that environment that I wouldn't have gotten from, from a private school. So, you know, I had this amazing upbringing, but was stubborn, but also had parents who gave me room to be stubborn. I had a lot of freedom as a, as a, as a child to just kind of figure things out and, you know, pick directions and make mistakes and, you know, do things that my father would then say like, Hey, that was a bad decision. Wasn't it? You could talk about why it was a, a bad decision. So, you know, I feel like I had a really good childhood to form someone who would need to go through some of the things that I had to go through as an adult. Great. I, I, are your parents still alive? So my mother is, my father, unfortunately, he passed away. Sorry to hear that. Um, are they proud? Well, you know, what you accomplished? I mean, my, my mother is certainly proud. You know, I would, you know, I, I would hope that, you know, my, my, my dad is looking down and, and, and he's proud as well. I, working in the education space, mm -hmm. I have the privilege of running into former principals and former teachers and interacting with people who knew me as a, as a teenager. And I've had teachers say like, Yo, we're so proud to see what you've done. We never would have thought you would be <laughs> doing what you're, you're, you're doing now. So, you know, it's, it's good to see, you know, for my mother to have seen that transition. I'm sure my, my, my father is, is, is proud. Um, you know, and my father is the reason I went into the, into the Marines. You know, yeah, I, yeah. He, he was a Marine. He, it, it worked out for him. I felt like, hey, maybe I needed something. He felt like I needed something in college wasn't where yeah. I should go directly out of high school, which he was right. You know, if I had gone to college first, I would have never graduated college. You know? mm -hmm after being in the military is completely different. Um, and interestingly enough, my 18-year-old who just graduated high school has also enlisted in the Marine Corps and he's going into the Marines. So he'll be the, the third to, to, to go into the Marines. Wow. And, you know, I think a lot of that has been very formative and, you know, it is good for, you know, for me to kind of see my mom's reaction to the differences in, in who I was as a teenager relative to who I am now. Great. Hey, thanks, uh, Sylvester, for, for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that.
You know that this particular po podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I've been doing for nine years now. And, well, inshallah, we always say that the tents will happen in October. Um, you know, and, and I started this because I'm trying to raise awareness and, and some funds for hunger, poverty, and, and injustice. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, uh, why would you do that? Um, so... Yeah. It's interesting that you ask that because you know I think about the journey of starting and building Coded by Kids. Um, it, it feels like I've walked 100 miles a, a week, <laughs> year, yeah. year after year. Um, you know, for me, it's how do we build true equity? You know, I would walk for that. You know, it's interesting when you talk about poverty. A conversation that I often have with people is we treat poverty as the problem. Poverty is a symptom of deeply ingrained systemic problems. And a mm -hmm. lot of times it stems from people who lack equity, who lack equality. And a lot of what I do, both personally and professionally, is around how do we build true equity and equality for people who lack it? Because if we're able to do that, then we can address poverty. You know, we can address issues in education. We can fix these other downstream things. And just for the listeners, because I, I, I know that I will not be able to edit this out. At my side, there is a lot of thunder going on. So that's what you hear on the background. <laughs> um, thanks, Sylvester. You know, what, what drives you in life? Uh, so I, I think stubbornness, um, hmm. to, to, to be honest. Um, you know, so if I think about, so as a kid, I was in trouble all the time. I, I was constantly in trouble, partly because I was just stubborn. Um, I say to people a lot, I'm not that different as an adult than the way I was as a, as a child. Yeah. I've just learned how to focus it and channel, you know, those things in a different way. Mm. But, you know, I think about, I was starting a nonprofit organization in a city where new upstart organizations struggle and rarely raise the capital that they need to be sustainable and, and grow. So I've started a nonprofit organization in a space knowing that and through just being stubborn, was able mm -hmm. to get funders on board, was able to you know grow the organization. Um, the same thing, you know, we picked a model where because we focus more on depth of impact, as opposed to breadth in, in numbers. Mm -hmm. I had other nonprofit leaders say to me, you need to stop doing that. You're never gonna be able to get the numbers that funders wanna see. Just focus on how many people you can, you, you, can, you, can, you can touch. So going into it, I also intentionally picked a model that I knew would be more difficult and figured like, I'm gonna make this work. You know, if this is really the best model to go with, then Whatever we have to do one way or the other, I'm going to make this model work. So it's just, you know, I think the thing that drives me is usually being stubborn, but also someone who's a really good friend of mine once said to me, um, so both good friend, but also board members. So they've seen the growth of Coded by Kids from the very beginning said to me, 
for better or for worse, you embody the idea of once you recognize a problem, you're then responsible for addressing the problem. And you know, I think mm-hmm. that's probably the easiest way to, to explain it. Right? If I see a problem, I then believe that it becomes my responsibility to address that problem. I'm not a, I'm not someone who feels like, well, someone else will address it or it's someone else's problem. Once I see it, it's like, well, I, I now recognize it. So I'm, I can't see that I'm mm-hmm. ignorant to the problem. So now it's up to me to, to do whatever I can to address it. Great. I'm 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 just pausing here for a moment because I you know the next time my wife tells me that I'm stubborn I'm I'm going to use some of what you <laughs> just said. <laughs> my organization is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year and so it's it's looking forward but it's also looking back and one of the topics that you know we are discussing is how well or how bad how did we do in terms of actions or non-actions around racial justice so if i ask you you know to look at the ngo sector as a whole and yes you know, it's difficult to to generalize because it's so you know it's so diverse sector as well, of course. But let us assume it's you know one sector that we can give a grade to. Um, how how did the NGO sector do? Um, I I would say very poorly. Um, you know, it, if you think about it, the the nonprofit space, the, the NGO sector, is very diverse. But when you really look at the United States, um, there are very few roads that don't run through race in some way. Um, if you think about how the systems and structures around race were codified into law, um, it impacted everything from housing regulation to, to banking, to education, you know, I have conversations with people about why inner cities lack swimming pools and how it's connected to to, to race and why certain school districts lack funding and how it's connected to to race when you go back and look at the laws and and how it was created. So while the the, the nonprofit space, while the NGO space is very diverse, those spaces still run through race in some way or another. And up until fairly recently, race has been one of the big things that no one in our country has really wanted to address. Like, I've watched people want to talk about and address everything else. But once you get into race, it gets into like this, well, I mean, slavery was a long time ago. Why do we need to talk about it? Like, it just becomes this thing no one has mm-hmm. wanted to, to address or talk about. And in the nonprofit space, a lot of nonprofit organizations that address issues that are impacting communities of color have also said, well, we don't want to deal with race. And so, well, how can you not deal with race? You're, the issues you're, 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 you're trying to impact and address, you know, run through race or are being driven by, by, by race and, and racial inequity. So I, you know, I would, 
say that our sector, our space has done a very poor job when it comes to, 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 to racial equity. When, when I walk uh, physically or virtually with, with uh, my guests, we often talk about, you know, what drives you in life, uh, what's your purpose. And then uh, there are conversations about religion and spirituality. And then very quickly, we to also talk often about the younger generation. And some people say, well, you know, the younger generation is very similar to, to us. Others are saying, no, it's very different. So my question to you is, um, what do you see happening in your community um, in terms of the younger generation and religion and spirituality? Um, I, I think that what I've what I've seen um, is in some ways uh, maybe almost um, being disillusioned. You, you know, I think that. Mm. I've had conversations with young people who look at, especially recent events, and they look at things around racial justice as, as one. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations where, you know, younger people have said, I don't see our religious institutions getting behind these things and speaking out the way we would have expected them to, you know, you, you, you know, it's almost like this, you can't put yourself out as, you know, a moral and ethical pillar, but then not speak out about injustice and not get behind movements to, to, to change things. And to be honest, I think that things like that have progressively resulted in almost a, um, a disengagement from from maybe not spirituality, but the institution of, mm -hmm. of religion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so w what you're seeing is, uh, I, I think when I listen to you, you make a distinction between, let's say, religion, which is more institutionalization of spirituality, maybe. Right. Um, so, you know, the younger generation might still be spiritual, but yeah, looking at, at, uh, at the religion, they feel that, that more distance from from uh, from it is that what you it kind of said? it is it, it is you know it's almost like um you know you may feel like a school failed you mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you think education is bad mm. you know, it's almost like the same way you may feel like the institute the religious institution is mm. failed but that doesn't mean you're you don't remain spiritual or you think that spirituality is bad it's just mm -hmm. you're looking at the institution and you know you have issues with with it as an institution so where where do you see them going to then or how do you do it how do they find uh, because i i think um a church if we are talking about institutionalized religion often has in the past at least uh, if not still now provided community uh so what do you see happening then with the younger well, generation? I, I think the jury is still out. Um, you know, and, and it, the, the thing about community is interesting that you bring that up because I've actually had conversations with people about that who have said, 
what I really got from church is community. And now I'm looking for mm. that someplace mm. else. So, you know, I've actually had conversations where mm. people have pulled out the community yeah. specifically, and it seems like people are looking elsewhere. Where they end up finding that, you know, I think is still an open question, mm. but people are looking for, for alternatives. What are some of the things that you worry about at the moment? I, I worry about our our lack of empathy, our lack of understanding for each other, and our inability to communicate and compromise. Um, and I think they're all connected. Um, mm. It's hard to have open communication and dialogue with someone that you lack empathy for. Um, also, a lack of empathy is a really fast way to humanizing people. These are hit, um, examples throughout history about what happens when you're able to dehumanize um, someone, in, you know, the person on the other side. So our inability to have that empathy, our inability to have that dialogue, that communication, but then that usually that communication, that empathy leads to our ability to compromise. And I'm often horrified when I listen mm -hmm. to people on different sides of, of the political spectrum saying like, we won't compromise and mm -hmm. I'll never compromise with that. How do you move forward if you can't compromise? You know, where does that leave you as, as a society? And You know, the the patterns throughout history have been when people reach that impasse and are unable to reach a compromise, the next step is now we have to fight. Like, I don't agree with you and I'm not willing to compromise. You don't agree with me. You're not willing to compromise. So now I'm willing to fight to force you to 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 whatever stance I have or whatever side. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a troubling pattern to just see that, like, you know, we have to be willing to have empathy for each other. We have to be understanding. We have to be willing to compromise. And, you know, it shouldn't matter what someone believes politically or, you know, what someone believes spiritually, like just our inability to do that. There is no good outcome that can come from that. Where do you still see hope? despite all these worries? Um, I, I still see hope in, in our young people. I, I usually say I like kids far more than I do adults. Um, and my hope is that if we're good caretakers, if, you know, because ultimately I see us as caretakers for the world that they're going to, to take over. If we're good caretakers, we're good mentors, we're good teachers, we will have a generation of young people who will be able to honestly fix a lot of the problems that we created and our parents and our grandparents created. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have hope in, in, in them and in, in, in that.
if if I ask you to to uh, come up to mention a piece of music or a song that embodies uh, you know you or you know or a big part of what you are about, what song or piece of music would that be? That's a that's an interesting question. Um, I would probably say um, Frank Sinatra. Um, I did it my way. It, you know, it goes back to just being stubborn um, and saying, I'm going to make this work and, and, and do this thing, you know, and, you know, with two separate things on various occasions, I can remember having a, a funder that I work with who, you know, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the data on fundraising for black nonprofit leaders, but black nonprofit leaders struggle mm -hmm. with raising money and, mm -hmm. And there's been like a lot of research and reports done about it. And this guy said to me, looking at what you've done and looking at the data for black nonprofit leaders, you shouldn't have been able to do what you've done statistically. So the fact that you've been able to do that is, is amazing. Um, but a part of it is just that stubbornness. I'm going to, to make this work. So, you know, I think we could probably... The, the thing that would embody me the most is, you know, Frank Sinatra's I Get It My Way. I, I've come to my last uh, question, and that is, you know, any message, invitation or question you might have for the listeners? If anything, I would just say, learn about people, talk to people. Yeah, I, I, a lot of the problems, and I don't care what the organization is, a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve, the starting point is just us understanding each other, learning about each other, talking to each other, having a dialogue. And where I see most problems and most impasses is that we've just done a poor job of, really talking to each other and understanding each other and how we view problems and how we perceive things. And, you know, if there's anything I would leave with people is just talk to people, get to know people, understand people who are different and come from different backgrounds and different perspectives and, you know, really try to build that understanding. Great. And, and uh, we will ensure that in the podcast notes, the information is there that if they would like to continue a conversation with you uh, or any other staff, colleagues of your companies, that they can find it. Um, yeah, I would like to, to thank you so much for your willingness to uh, spend time with me and, and tell your stories, share your stories. Um, yeah, good luck with everything you do and uh, keep, keep that up. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.